You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are here with a new book brought to us by our guest today, Jim Noy of the Invisible Event of In Gad We Trust, another wonderful fan of crime and mystery fiction here. Jim, it's so good to have you on the show, and thank you so much for bringing us this book, which you edited. Yeah, yeah, I did. It was it was one of these almost apocryphal titles that you go, and I am never going to get a chance to read this. So I wonder why not. I wonder what the issue is with rights. And so I sort of launched myself in two-footed with no idea what I was doing and got incredibly lucky being able to... Um, being able to yeah, bring this and another one at Roscoe's uh, into print. It was awesome. It was yeah, awesome. that's really fantastic. Yeah. I mean, my understanding is it was a it was a serial, like it was a serial release beginning, and then it got like renewed by by the by a library of some sort. Like it, it apparently it's been in in rights hell. That's what my impression is. Well, part part of the issue is, and please tell me when this gets boring. But part <laughs> of the issue is, it was serialized in Argosy magazine under a different title: "A Grave Must Be Deep." Yes, and it was rewritten for novel publication. And part of the complication is precisely whether the rights belonged to Argosy in its original format or whether the rewrite meant that the rights were actually Roscoe's. And there's a certain amount of debate around that that the publishers very kindly got into on my behalf. <laughs> um, this would, Murder on the Way is the slightly rewritten version. Argosy have since released the original uh, serialised form in, in, in novel form. So you can also buy... A Grave Must Be Deep now and compare and see just how similar and indeed how different the two styles of story are. So Murder on the Way follows Edwin Edward Cattershall and uh, Patricia or Pete Dale. Just call her Pete, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll go by Pete. uh, Who make their way to Haiti after the death of Pete's uncle, Eli Proudfoot. And my goodness, it just gets weird right away. (laughs) They're there for a funeral where the grave is already dug, the coffin is already prepared, the will is about to be read out. And then the doctor who did the autopsy upon the murdered body seems to die mysteriously and uh, then things just get worse. And there are very an, a very obvious like suspect lineup. We were clearly playing on the idea of like a country house murder, as as mentioned by Jim in the in the forward in the book. But like we ha- that we have these seven individuals who are named in the will, and they as you said they also start off strange and only get stranger. There's like this mercenary guy who is so cavalier about the whole thing. There's a Nazi for some reason. There's some very racist there caricatures. Are, yeah, yeah, They're there really are, yeah. terrible. You just, you just feel, I mean, everything inside of you clenches with with sort of horror. But yeah, like we have these very uh, clear and obvious seven suspects, aside from our main characters, Pete and uh, and Carter Shaw. I've already forgotten his first name. doesn't matter. He's the protagonist. Like the, the way that I tend to approach these stories is not by characters' names, but more by their like characterization, the story and their roles. And I definitely felt that this novel, the way it relies on these tropes, like the the Nazi in our midst, it very much kind of lends itself to that feeling of how like pulpy it is, Jim. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, about the pulp there and how it kind of seeps into that that mindset. My understanding of the pulps was that it was it was a weekly magazine. Roscoe would have been one of eight or nine authors published in this magazine. And traditionally, this is how the slightly cheaper, slightly gaudier forms of adventure fiction were were consumed in, you know, the first half, the first, well, maybe not the first half, in the first third or so of the 
20th century. Yeah, I, I'd say I'd say to be most of the 20th century. It's just that in the back half, it was kind of taken over by science fiction almost exclusively. <laughs> That's fair. That, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is true. Sorry, I'm coming at this from a from a mystery bias, obviously. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, That's good. But yes, yeah, so what, what you are, you are one of six or seven or eight people and you need your story to be memorable. So week on week, what, what you're trying to write is almost this ridiculously gaudy over the top mystery so that when people pick up that oh. magazine a week later, they don't have to go back and read the previous installments or the previous four installments. You know, you, you go back and you look at something like The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill, which was released in a similar way. It came out a week at a time. Something like The Four Just Men by Edgar Wallace. Again, very famously withheld the solution and set it as a challenge and ended up bankrupting himself because so many people got the solution right. So... I completely agree that the characteristics of this are wildly over the top. Well, I mean, that was the thing I was actually going to challenge you on here is that despite this clearly being insane and very over the top, I feel like it could have gone harder to its benefit because there's a lot of atmosphere to the first five chapters that is very much told, not shown. We're told about these drums Mm. that are ringing out in preparation for the funeral that are going pretty much the entire time for the first five chapters once we arrive on Haiti itself. But we never actually kind of get a sense of them being there. We're just reminded every now and then, oh, yes, the drums are still playing. Yeah, they're ominous in the distance, right? (laughs) Like foreboding the (laughs) weird nonsense that is to come. Yeah, it's just really interesting because having come from a series of very atmospheric novels, Mm. like the last one we've covered is Emma Stonex's The Lamplighters, which is intensely atmospheric. Now, when we look at the drums here, it, it, it just feels a little pale in comparison. You know, we, we say that it, um, it, it doesn't have any concrete sort of examples of, uh, of, of mystery, I guess, but it, we have had three deaths already. Like, the, the story is ramping up its action by killing, you know, the original person died, Eli, the Doctor, and uh, Wilberforce, I believe it is, who tries to be a spooky ghost and fails miserably because he's an idiot. <laughs> I, is that um, what happens? I believe so. <laughs> I believe that's what happened. I thought He's that like, someone tried to be a spooky ghost and then left his body behind. Oh, you know what? Maybe that's what happened. You know what? Either way, whatever the whatever the case may be, like there are these concrete examples of the the stakes being raised, of murders actually happening, and the story is very forthright about this. We had the introduction of the uh, the the policeman. I forget his name, but the the guy, the like, lieutenant, who's like, I am in Narcisse. control of Nazis. Was like, I am in control of everything, and. And everything will be fine as long as I am in control. But he's very clearly not in control. Like, he's <laughs> such a great character. I mean, his name, co- I, correct yes, me well. on my interpretation of his name, but it basically means no one of worth, right? That sounds right. <laughs> am I reading that, that correctly? Right. Either way, this guy is very clearly the authority of no power, of no worth, who is constantly putting restrictions on our characters, trying to up the tension by taking away their weapons and monitoring them and say, you're suspicious and you're not, da 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 but ultimately will not be of importance, right, to the actual plot. I mean, it, it wouldn't be the country house mystery we were discussing earlier yes. if there wasn't an inept idiot policeman getting in the way, right? Well, the other interesting thing about it being a uh, country house mystery is that compared to a lot of country house, or at least rather the country house mystery stereotype where we are in the country house to separate ourselves from the outside world, here in this mystery our country house is really the island yes. of Haiti. But there's also a house anyway. Like, <laughs> Well, yeah, but the house is more like a room in the house Haiti. Oh, for sure. If for that sure. makes sense to you. Because we you. still have other players moving around the island. We still have the police force entering and exiting. It's not a closed circle in the same way that we'd expect of a country house mystery. 
And in the spirit of fair play, you can still kind of expect that the circle will be closed to those present in the house at the necessary times. Yeah. It does open the playing field a bit. And especially when we start to look at like the zombie mythology that gets brought up, then it's almost like there's this external threat that something may yet be arriving or may be about to leave the house. You know, which direction is the pressure going? Yeah, totally. We've suggested that there are going to be more deaths and that you're told a zombie is someone trapped between life and death. And so it would be a real shame if nothing came of that, wouldn't it? <laughs> I suppose it would. It would I mean, be. that would I suppose be it would. Chekhov's gun taken to an absolute <laughs> extreme of just not using it. Yeah, you know? totally. Oh, oh, there's, all this, there's, all this, there's all this zombie mythology and people die. He has a dream the- about it. Our main character has a dream where he's like, I am now going to read the book of the voodoo. And it's got like a like a foreign title. It's like, it's crazy pants. <laughs> the whole thing is just insane. <laughs> Uh, if there's no zombies in this story, I will I will eat my hat. I'm sorry to tell you, there may be no zombies in this story, Herds. I don't know what you're talking about. There will be zombies. I'm looking forward to it. Have you seen the cover? There are zombies on the cover, for God's sake. Yeah, dude, there's skeletons. No. There's skeletons in the art in the book. I mean, listen, George Romero never got real zombies to star in his films, so I've still got legs to stand on. You can't, you can't prove that, can you? I, I suppose. It's a devil's proof. <laughs> That's awful. As far as I know, all zombies are just ballet dancers, so, you know. Locked Room International are about to publish (laughs) Death Among the Undead, which is a legitimate impossible crime novel from Japan, actually featuring zombies. Yes, please. So they take the rules of detective fiction and apply it to the zombie apocalypse. That sounds phenomenal. It sounds sounds amazing. Incredible. (laughs) My goodness. We'll have to... Have to cover that when it comes out. I suppose, Herds, we uh, we might tidy things up there and make our way over to the mystery affair. The spooky mystery section. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Theodore Roscoe's Murder on the Way, chapters one to five. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I'm joined on the line by a very special guest. We have Anthony Horowitz here with us, who's just put out the latest in the Daniel Hawthorne series of mysteries featuring Daniel Hawthorne and himself as the sidekick. And we've just completed our tour through Magpie Murders, one of his previous mysteries. I'm so excited to have you here on the show. There were no stumbles in the setting up of this interview, Anthony. Welcome. You are the complete pro, Felix. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. (laughs) Now, across your metafictions, you've explored a variety of regular relationships in the literary world, dialed up to 11, book launches, writers festivals, publishing oversight, the role of the editor. Do you ever have to make phone calls apologizing in advance to the equivalent people in your own life when these books come out? (laughs) No, I'm happy to say that I've had no complaints. Many of my publishers, editors, family, friends, or anybody else who happens to find themselves in my books. Uh, I think they recognize these entertainments. I'm not out to do any point scoring. I'm not out to say anything unpleasant about anybody. Um, And basically, I have a very benign view of life and like most of the people that I'm surrounded by. So what could I possibly put in my books that would upset them? Yeah, I guess the thing I wanted to get into in Metafiction is that you've had a a really interesting relationship with that. We're now five books deep into uh, a series of crime and metafiction mysteries through uh, Susan Ryland, Daniel Hawthorne, and you also have an enormous back catalogue going all the way back and further than Midsummer Murders as well. So having worked in the genre for so long, whose works do you think most of uh, when you go to plan out metafiction? And 
uh, I guess, how do you avoid being cynical having worked in the genre for as long as you have? Well, I can answer the second question more easily than the first. I avoid being cynical because I love the genre. I love crime fiction. I love murder mysteries. I think they have a real role to play, particularly in a world which is so uncertain. You know, we've just been through two years of lockdown and COVID. Uh, the political scene, both in America and certainly in the United Kingdom, is very, um, what's the word for it? It's very, you know, who do you trust? Who do you listen to? What do you believe? I think one of the joys of murder mystery is is it's one of the very few genres of fiction that is entirely about the truth, where you get to the end of a, of a book, um, a whodunit, every I is dotted, every T is crossed, you know who the killer was, the world somehow is healed, you come away with a sense of comfort. So cynical, never, not me. Now, what was the first part of your question? What do I think about when I'm thinking about metaphysics? Well, the answer to that, I guess, begins with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of uh, Sherlock Holmes, the inspiration for Magpie Murders, which was the first of the two novels starring Atticus Punt and Susan Ryland. Doyle is an interesting writer. He's a very, very great writer. You know, I have actually written two books in the Sherlock mm. Holmes world. So I know his work very, very well. Uh, and what I think is fascinating about him is that he created this extraordinary character, two extraordinary characters, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. He more or less invented the modern crime novel, but he had a dislike of Sherlock Holmes almost from the beginning. And what he wanted was to be known for his uh, romantic historical novels, such as, for example, The White Company and Michael Clark. Now, I wonder how many of your listeners listeners, or you, have, have even heard of these books, let alone read them. They're not very good, to be honest with you. Ian Fleming and James Bond, mm. and, and, and had a certain disdain for it, or even though it made him a fortune and made him world famous. Agatha Christie once spoke out about Hercule Poirot, calling him this sort of stupid, vain, yeah. pompous, egotistical, whatever. I find that relationship really interesting, and that was my inspiration, certainly for The Magpie Murders uh, and its sequel. Well, the other thing I wanted to touch on then is that talking of the relationship between an author and a character what is that relationship like when the character is yourself because in the hawthorne novels you cast yourself in the sidekick role as i mentioned and the sidekick is often a character that's more junior less intelligent but arguably more the hero and more relatable you know how does it feel writing yourself in that position well that's the fun of it because you see the, when i came to write the series that began with the word is murder and the sentence is death and now a line to kill my aim was to try and do something with the whodunit that had never been done before. And I began with the thought that the writer is the cleverest person in the picture, because before the murder's even been committed, the writer knows who's going to die, and the writer knows where the clues are going to be. He knows or she knows whether whether how the solution is going to form itself. In other words, the writer is way ahead of a detective who hasn't even been born yet, quite possibly. So by taking myself off the mountain and putting myself into the book as the sort of Watson figure, the narrator, I did exactly what you just said. I went from being the cleverest person to being the most stupid person. Now I'm five steps behind Daniel Hawthorne. Uh, if he doesn't solve the crime, I won't even have a book to write about. I don't really know what to describe because I don't know what the clues are. I don't know anything about the suspects. I am ignorant and I am sort of stupid. Yeah. And, and that, however, allows me to write about whodunits in a completely new and refreshing way. And I should say that when I had this idea and I pitched it to my publishers in England, they were quite nervous about, you know, is this going to be an opportunity to, to go on an ego trip? Is it going to make, you know, am I going to sit there and tell people how many books I've sold and how successful I am and, you know, how much better a writer I am than other writers or whatever? And in fact, that was never my intention. I was always going to be the sidekick. I am not the central character in the book. I am just the narrator. And as you put it so correctly, I am the most 
stupid person in the book. <laughs> well, I guess the thing I wanted to touch on then is that your voice as an author is really tangible in A Lion to Kill, both because you're the character there, but also because there are a lot of points I could practically feel your hand turning my neck to clues in a way that was almost haunting, a very kind of crime fiction staple. Do you have to feel, you know, you were mentioning the kind of ego trip there. Do you have to feel at least a little bit smug while you're putting the puzzles together to get the mystery balance right in crime fiction? I hope I never feel smug. I mean, it does matter to me that people shouldn't be able to guess my books. I mean, I spend an awful lot of time thinking up clues that will hopefully sit there in plain sight, but which won't give the game away. And I have to say that I cheat a little bit because once I've finished the first draft, I show it to my wife, who is super smart, and to my kids, who are also pretty bright. And if they guess who did it, I then very, very quickly make adjustments to make sure that the same mistake doesn't happen when the book is published. But no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a case of just, you know, wanting to really write not just who done it, but also to have the opportunity to write about writing. I think there are so many interesting questions to ask about who done it. So I'll give you one, for example. Why is it that murder is by and large horrible? If a man kills his wife, it is an act of extreme violence and unpleasantness. But when we come to who done it and murder mysteries, the, the pages can be littered with bodies and with blood and, and such, and we just smile, it becomes entertainment. Why is that? These are the sort of questions that I wanted to ask. Now, the idea that somebody sits down like in an Agatha Christie book and spends several months working out that if they disguise themselves as the waiter and slip up the back stairs and have some cyanide in their left-hand pocket and frame the guy who's sitting opposite the person they want to kill, etc., etc., they'll get away with it. That's actually complete nonsense. Yeah, anyone who's planned anything knows that nothing survives contact with the enemy. That's right, but that is the joy of it for writing these books for me because I am a modern person in a modern world and I'm suddenly in these books where the sort of Daniel Hawthorne is something of a Christie-esque character or a Sherlock Holmesian character in the sort of deductions he makes and the clues that he discovers. And I quite like that sort of mix and match between the real world and the fake world. In fact, if you read... um. Magpie Murders, the first book, I, uh, I, a metafiction book that I wrote, some of the characters in it exist. I met just last week, I was in Torquay, I was at Agatha Christie's house, and I met her grandson, Matthew Pritchard. If you read Magpie Murders, one of the characters has lunch with Matthew Pritchard in a real restaurant in London. And so you've got to think of, you know, the fourth wall between fiction and reality is really getting a, a hammering in my books. While we were talking about Magpie Murders, one of the guests that we had on was talking about how so often modern crime fiction is trying to excise modern conveniences. And that's something that you were touching on there. And one of the ways that you've excised a bit, but not all of modern convenience in this book is by setting it on an island, one of the classic murder mystery locations. And there was a tangible parallel to me in the separation from the island to the mainland and from Hawthorne to the rest of the cast. The idea that the island is this closed off place uh, of mystery and intrigue and Hawthorne's inner self, perhaps, you know, is closed off. What do you get by putting the emotionally isolated detective character in a physically isolated serial murder incident? I think that I like very much the idea of a detective as the outsider. Uh, I think that's what, make, what's make, what makes Poirot and Sherlock Holmes such interesting characters, is that they come from outside. They have very little contact with humanity in some ways. Look at Poirot, for example, who is unmarried, who never seems to have any romance, who has only one or two very close friends. I mean, there's Jap and there's Hastings. Poirot himself often comes into closed communities. His job is to resolve the problems there. Who killed who? What else is happening that people are lying about, and then to leave and everything is left intact behind him. Now that, of course, has its perfect physicality in a location like Alderney, where both Hawthorne and, for that matter, myself, are 
total outsiders. And at the moment we're on the island, we are, as it were, separated and completely um, divorced from our own lives, from our own families. I think I mentioned when I speak to my wife once on the phone, but that's about it. I am really on my own with Hawthorne. And of course, Alderney is the home to Hawthorne's nemesis, a man by the name of Derek Abbott, who has got some connection with what happened to him when he was a child. So Alderney is, if you like, a trap. It's somewhere that both of us feel uncomfortable in. And add to that that there is a murderer somewhere on the island. And you have a classic locked room set up, effectively, because an island is a locked room. So it did work very well as both a physical location and as a metaphysical location, you know, in, in regard to who we are and, and, and how we think and feel. Yeah, I guess having written for so many different franchises over the years and writing mystery and trying to do something new, do you feel like there's mandatory homework for you in catching up on all of the mysteries that everyone else has done while you've been looking away and writing other fiction? Well, I've read Golden Age detective fiction all my life. By and large, nowadays, I read less because I'm too scared of coming across great clues or great ideas that I wish I had put into my books and which I can't do because I've read them somewhere else. And I'll give you an example of that. Ira Levin in A Kiss Before Dying, a book I like very, very much. It's sort of a, not quite a whodunit. You know who the killer is from the start. But there is an absolutely wonderful clue relating to a, a wedding in the book. And when I read it, I was just annoyed I'd read that book because I might have thought that <laughs> idea and now I can't. Fantastic. Well, Anthony, it has been such a pleasure having you here on Death of the Reader, and I've very much enjoyed getting to read both Magpie Murders and The Line to Kill, and thank you so much for coming here on Death of the Reader. Felix, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Death of the Reader, Anthony Horowitz there, talking A Line to Kill and Magpie Murders. We will have links up on the podcast if you're curious to find out more about those or get yourself a copy. You're listening to 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing Theodore Roscoe's Murder on the Way, chapters 1 to 5. We are joined by Jim Noy of The Invisible Event, of Ingad We Trust, and the editor of this very term. And my goodness, Herds. Mm-hmm. It's time to introduce a new stipulation to the show. I'm so ready. I'm so ready for this. <laughs> we were thinking, because there's two of us solving it for the first time on the show, as far as yeah. I can recall, Jim. <laughs> How are we were going to make this make sense? You know, whether we were going to have to s- make you sit here in the third week and divvy out points and give scraps of, of point rations. To each of us, yeah. It get complicated. Let's We've decided no. <laughs> Let's We've decided way. no. Yeah. We are giving you the power here, <laughs> okay. Mr. Jim Noy. What we have in store is that over the course of this novel, there are three points available, but they are available to you, sir. Ooh. And you will get one of each of those three points for each technicality that you are able to catch on our solution. You can be as finicky as you so choose, as guilty as you feel like being in the final work. It is up to Herds and I to agree on a solution by the end of next week yep. and for you to adjudicate that same solution. Outstanding. It's going to be scary. Outstanding. I like it. I, li- I like this new wrinkle. This is cool. <laughs> so we are giving the power, but make make no mistake, we will not be holding back in the ring. <laughs> We will be pulling all of our zombie voodoo stunts we can possibly get our hands on and get through this alive. I hope you know that. We take points very seriously on this show. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I mean, Herds, Good. let's just get straight into things. I need to know. Oh, shall we? Who you think the culprit is and why it is Uncle Eli. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Eli? How could it possibly be Uncle Eli Flex? That sounds ridiculous. He's dead, isn't he? Well, he's the only character that seems to have died outside the story, and thus he is immune to the murder mystery of this murder mystery game. It's true. It's true. Uh, now, look, I'm, I'm going to have to disagree with you there, Flex. I think that's ri- ridiculous. 
Uncle Eli, he's, he's dead. He's got a stake through his heart. How could you possibly come back from that? I don't think that a that is- A stake through his heart? You're, Jim, you're what was the alternate pants. title of this book again? Could you remind us? <laughs> a grave must be deep. It must be deep. Ah, interesting. Because you got to put a dead body in there. I need to be clear because uh, Jim here, who is, you know, the editor and therefore responsible for the shenanigans in this novel. Obviously. Single-handedly. Uh, Jim has tried to bamboozle me retroactively from the from whenever this book was written look, back in the day. Because in this this tontine, there are not seven characters, but eight characters. <clears throat> and that is Pete. One of the first characters we see in the book alongside our protagonist. We've had all this uh, this talk of, of zombies and controlling people after they, de- after they die. But what if that's foreshadowing for controlling someone? while they're still alive, before they've even been put into the grave. This is, in fact, a ploy by Patricia Dale, Pete, to murder her evil uncle Eli, steal his fortune. Rubbish. How do you reconcile Pete Dale committing a crime on an island she was not on at the beginning of the story? I was I was going to ask if, if, between you, what you're suggesting is the man who's been shot in the middle of his head... And the woman who was apparently not on Haiti at the time. I'm interested to see how this conspiracy comes together between these the two. The conspiracy? Well, clearly she uh, clearly she has some kind of body double. <laughs> or Well, now that's not allowed, her. That's actually, not allowed. I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. Uncle Eli was not actually deceased at the time because the uh-huh. doctor is also an accomplice. That's why he was killed. <laughs> that's why he was killed. He said yes. The man has been shot in the head. That's what I was getting at. I was expecting, I was expecting here that Uncle Eli had in fact faked his death because let's just take a look at the evidence. Jim, could you please remind us what the major stipulation to every single person's entry in the will was? They must spend 24 hours... Is it on Haiti or is it in the house? On Haiti, yes. That is correct. It is, it is on Haiti. Following the reading of the will, everybody must be there for 24 hours. Otherwise, they forfeit their place in the ladder of inheritance. Now, whoever put this stipulation in the will, ostensibly Eli himself, must have a plan for each of these characters. We're walking into a trap here. Mind control, witches, I'm just saying. <laughs> yes, continue. <laughs> Are we, are we Pete just is, mass, mass hypnotism or something like this? Yes. Pete. Zombie story. Zombie, Zombie story. story. Very true. Yeah, look, witches are not that far off. Hypnotism witches. The most telling thing, if I were to fall in with your theory, which I'm not, but the, the <laughs> fact that both Toadstool and his mother are both in the will and are both explicitly being encouraged to kill each other, like that is such a red flag to me. <laughs> that is such a huge red flag. Oh, yeah, that's so, the like, red the whole, flag in the, the story. Whole point, well, the whole point of the, the will is that you want to kill each other. That's the only reason it's there. That's the only reason. That's true. No, I think, uh, I think the interesting question to me is what Uncle Eli was up to uh, to encourage all of this because it would seem to me that everyone has slighted Uncle Eli in some way uh, and my thought was here uh-huh. that we're dealing with something illicit. Uncle Eli is trying to cover up something of his own sins by masking it with the sins of others. Mm. I'm still not a little sure. There's a suggestion in here that he was uh, dealing with uh, narcotics or something. But I think that they that may be what's pushing us over the edge. And specifically why I think Ambrose is involved. Because every good drug runner needs a thug. You say that character. from experience? I've dealt with herds for this long. <laughs> it's true. It's true. 
So also, oh, you're Everybody's, the thug. Uh, yeah, let's go. Right. Okay. This. Yeah. This makes sense now. All right. That. I mean, do you not know that they're my favorite character in Murder Mystery? Ben's the- favorite character is the mirror. <laughs> it's true. I am so looking forward to the two of you trying to agree on something by the end of next session. This is going to be great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I don't think in this week that we've gotten too far from the truth in something that we've said. Something we've <laughs> said I, this week is I, going to be correct. I have one more thing I need to throw forward. The which- question is more whether or not we can agree on which part was correct. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we ever will, but Flex, I need to throw a wrinkle into my own theory here because I have one small problem, one teeny tiny little Just issue. one small wrinkle in your theory. No other Just major Just one wrinkle I need, to, I need to patch out before we agree on something next week. When Wilberforce is shot- they make it very clear that he was shot in the back mm. uh, and Pete is in front of him. So I'm just going to throw that out there. That is that is the one detail that I haven't quite been able to succinctly- Well, that's that's why I thought that it know. was someone else holding his body up well, in that's, the closet. that's the thing, isn't it? Or she's a witch and she can bend bullets, you know? Maybe maybe, maybe she can. Maybe there's some Angelina Jolie and wanted stuff she's going on. She's a hypnotist, a witch. Oh, she's a bullet witch too. <laughs> She's a bullet witch. She's a bullet witch. Yep. Yeah. My goodness. I suppose, Herds, we're going to have to find a way to agree on this by the end of next week before Jim Noy and, by extension, Sean Britton walk away with three points. He's the captain of the team. Well, good luck to us. <laughs> before we depart today, tell us a little bit about the Invisible Event and about Ingad We Trust and what people can expect when they follow the link up on the podcast to find your work. Oh, mainly just my controversial opinions about classic era detective fiction. I... I just really love stuff from the 20s, 30s and 40s. I'm a huge fan of Impossible Crimes, which is part of how I came across Theodore Roscoe's work in the first place. So, yeah, the the, the podcast in God We Trust is a ridiculously over-serious and complicated look at elements of uh, classic era detective fiction, but I enjoy it and it's free. So, you know, that's that's good. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader this week. Thank you for having me. Jim, what are the chapters we're covering next week on the show? Six to nine. All righty. I'm very much looking forward to this me and too. to uh, finally convincing Herds that I am the superior mystery solver <laughs> on ridiculous. this show. That's ridiculous. If such a thing were even possible. <laughs> we'll have to debate ourselves into a whole, a grave perhaps- next time it's true it's true i have been very impressed with the fact that we found it so difficult to agree with each other that jim didn't even have to pose a counter theory this week it's we true. ate ourselves alive this was this was the easiest job i've ever done thank you so much <laughs> you'll have to pose one for us next week jim i'm looking forward to you actually uh going at us with all you've got he's, he's saving his energy and reserve for now ah uh, completely completely well because there are two of you to bamboozle so i've, I've, I've got a I've, i'm just testing oh, the water I'm, I'm playing myself in for these first few overs and then we'll go for it next week yeah. that sounds good this has been your murder mystery world tour here on 2ser 107.3 we'll have links up on the podcast and we'll see you back here next week for chapters six to nine of theodore roscoe's murder on the way here on 2ser 107.3